financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. Welcome to another hotel edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic here with my co-host Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Enterprises. I am coming to you from a undisclosed location after uh, doing last week's show from uh, the Marble Arch Marriott in London. Can you disclose the time zone you're in? I am in the Eastern time zone. Closer than closer than before. I've gotten closer to home. Well, I've been around. I was at uh, the Sabres game on Thursday night, so I don't think that I need to be uh, too clandestine. People have seen me oot in a boot. But uh, working on a story and uh, just decided to go ahead and do the podcast from, from another hotel bunker. Um. Jonah, we got a full plate here uh, to talk about. I'm going to let you pick where we start. Sabres game last night. They lost 5-1 to one to the Rangers in the season opener. Pretty disappointing. I went to the game to write about it. Decided not to write about it because Matthew Fairburn, who covers the Sabres for the Athletic, he was there. There just wasn't enough to go around in the first game out of 82. Maybe if something super special had happened or They'd gotten off to a great start. There could have been a vibe story, but I mean, what am I going to do? Jump their shit after one game, the youngest team in the NHL. So I just decided what's the point? Really, there just wasn't a lot of material there to write. And I'm going to wait for some trends to develop before I start covering Sabres games uh, uh, a little more fervently. Uh, we have the uh, Buffalo Bills. Uh, they're going to try to rebound from their London malaise Sunday night against the New York Giants. Uh, you got some drama going on with Stefan Diggs again, and whether or not you believe it's drama, at least it's fodder for the talk shows. He's played five games and has his second gold jacket. Speaking of having your shit jumped, uh, uh, the second gold jacket of the season is, has, uh, has jumped on uh, Stefan Diggs for his sideline behavior this time it's uh, Shannon Sharp previously it was Michael Irvin uh we have the palace intrigue uh, of the Buffalo Bills and the Buffalo Sabres their COO and EVP John Roth as well as uh the senior VP of the Bills uh, Catherine D'Angelo who also was the team's general counsel and uh person in charge of human resources they were fired on Wednesday for an inappropriate relationship. Uh, stop me if you've heard this before regarding Western New York's big league sports teams. Uh, we have UB football against Bowling Green this weekend. Where do you want to start? I think we could start with the Sabres. That's the freshest on my mind. And I think um, 
as much as maybe there wasn't a whole lot to write about post game on what happened on the ice, I think there's a lot to unpack and look at and write about throughout the week in terms of just coming into the season, the expectations, the vibes, the uh, trends that maybe have emerged through preseason and training camp and coming into the team, coming into the season and looking at the roster and then what happened in the first game that counts and what might continue or might be an aberration going into this next slate of games, one road game and then another homestand with four in a row. Um, but for me, I, I don't know, the vibes – you mentioned maybe wanting to go down and write a vibe story. I think the vibes are different than they were a year ago. Um, I thought the crowd was very much energized. It was a sold-out building, which it hasn't been for the past two home openers. It was a heavy and New York Rangers crowd, though, Jonah. There were New York Rangers fans there, and it was. I think that contributed to the atmosphere a little bit, but I think the Sabres crowd was loud and energized and into it with the pregame introductions and the moment for Rick Jenneret. You know, there were a lot of Sabres fans there at 4 o'clock for that dedication and for the blue and gold carpet where the Sabres players arrived. And there was a lot of buzz and anticipation and good feeling from the fan base that came back in the last year or two but was missing at some point before that and seems all the way back. And the crowd was into it for big hits and opportunities to cheer the Sabres. They just got down 2 nothing very early and never got back in the game very well and ended up losing 5-1, to one, and it was difficult for the crowd to, you know, sustain, I think, that. But the disappointment was that the Sabres, who have been very good even in their lean years in the past couple of years of rising to the emotion, the moment, and feeding off the energy in the building and playing their best on the big nights for the franchise and the fan base, didn't deliver on that yesterday. And this was after a preseason where they had a losing record. They gave up 27 goals, which were the most of any team in the NHL in preseason play, and yeah, it's preseason, but the Sabres did play pretty much their whole lineup in that last game and lost 7-4. to four. And, you know, it, the vibes are different. They aren't as exciting as they were after pretty good preseasons, I think, they had the past two years, and then winning the opener and starting fast. They didn't end with a playoff season, but the Sabres started well the past two seasons under Don Granado, and that's not continuing now into the th third season when the expectations are much higher. Well, you wrote a piece for WIVB.com regarding the Sabres' age, and I thought it was interesting. It's the type of thing that you know, but until you see it in an article, it doesn't necessarily hit you um, in, in, a, in a way that um, uh, that you can digest. And the Sabres, once again, are the youngest team in the NHL, but they dropped uh, almost a year. They go from 26.1 years old last season to 25.3 years old as of last night. Now, of course, they're adding 18-year-old Zach Benson, uh, and you're replacing Craig Anderson, um, the Methuselah of goaltenders, uh, with Devin Levi. Um, that affects the number. But the twist in your story, as you mentioned, uh, is that the Sabres, while being the youngest team again in the NHL, they are not the least experienced. There are five teams who are less experienced than the Sabres. I think that's a good trend to be so young but have some some games. But what was your your takeaway from, from that research? Well, I think it was interesting for a number of us to cover the team to kind of note the way the math came in on that because the Sabres brought back almost every player that was on the team at the end of last season and very close to the beginning of last season. And everybody obviously has one more year of age and year of experience. You thought those numbers would go up. 
and to see the average age go down. Now, Matt Savoy is on injured reserve, and he's 19 years old, and that factors in. Having three goalies on the roster on opening night is different than last year. UPL is 24, so that skews the number a little bit. But the Sabres also signed Eric Johnson, a 35-year-old player. So losing, replacing Craig Anderson with Devin Levi does most of that math and kind of keeps the Sabres as young as they were a year ago. But they're still the youngest team in the league with the best prospect pool, and that portends very well to the future and asset management and where this team is going. And as Kevin Adams likes to say, set up for long-term success in the short term. I don't know if it's something to worry about, but it is maybe something to give pause and a little bit of pump the brakes on the hype because they are still a young team, even though they're more experienced than their age, they're still one of the less experienced teams in the league and they still have room to grow and lessons to learn. And even though it does seem like they're ready to contend for a playoff position and should be a good team in that position throughout the season, it's still going to be difficult work getting from average to good. That's a lot harder than going from bad to average. And that might take, it might not just happen like that on opening night. That might take a full season or two of this team progressing and learning and getting to that point. um, Not as quickly as Sabres fans and a lot of observers maybe thought they would at this point. Not necessarily a great start in terms of the opposition out of the gate, but the Sabres do have five of their first six games at KeyBank Center. Now, of course, they dropped last night's uh, five to one again against the Rangers. They are at the New York Islanders on Saturday and then come back for four in a row against Tampa, Calgary, uh, the Islanders and Montreal. So uh, a chance to find their footing, uh, a young team again. It helps that they're, uh, I think, getting started at home. Then again, you always hear the adage uh, when it comes to hockey, it's good to get away. Also get on a long road trip, do some bonding, uh, which is tough to do in training camp. And it's one of the things that Peter Laviolette said last night when I asked him a question about the uh, 1-3-1 that uh, the Sabres had trouble with. Again, it's historically the formula to beat them. It frustrates them. And so uh, I asked Peter Laviolette about the one three one frustrating. Uh, I didn't ask him about how it frustrated the Sabres. I just asked how he thought his team performed uh, in, in that. And he laughed and said, that's one of the things we need to work on. It's because during training camp, you're starting to uh, just find your way towards the end. When you go from the 60 players down to the people who are going to make your final roster and you get all of those components working together, working on the four check, working through the neutral zone stuff, defensives, whatever. Um And he says that that's still a work in progress for them. It was a point that Matthew Fairburn made in his story that the Sabres were really frustrated about their inability to adjust against the 1-3-1 and the Rangers saying, we kind of are just still trying to figure it out. Um, So, you know, that's that's, uh, just something to be mindful of moving forward. But anyway, the point that Laviolette making is that it's hard to get the chemistry going through training camp and all those preseason games because you have so many players who are going back to their junior team or going to Rochester or, you know, you're working through stuff. You're, you're experimenting a little bit. Well, now that the season's begun uh, you can see these guys uh, get some of these, uh, these traits, the symbiosis that all that type of stuff uh, going here. And I think that getting on the road uh, does play a significant role in that. Uh, when it comes to uh, the uh, 
hockey more than any other sport. And a couple other notes with the Sabres and their offense. Uh, the Rangers blocked 23 shots and have, you know, Igor Shosturkin won the Vezina Trophy two years ago. And the Sabres ended up having more shot attempts in the game. Uh, Eric Johnson and Jeff Skinner are very points. They had 25 shots and, tw- and the Rangers had 23 blocks. Right. Which is pretty yeah. incredible. And I, I just wanted to say, if I were the Rangers writer as the secondary person, I would have definitely written about, hey, Jacob Truba, great job blocking eight shots in the season opener. But I would love to have gotten into the um, the mentality or the attitude of whether or not the Rangers want him. Obviously, you'd love to have the guy block eight shots every night. So that means he's going to finish with almost 700 block shots on the season. But you got to save yourself for 82 games in the playoffs. Like, Hey, let's uh, you know, uh, the Sabres are struggling. It was clear that the, that the Rangers were going to win this game Uh, to Truba. You don't need to be hobbling off the ice every other shift because you took a Tage Thompson uh, slap shot to the shin. Yeah. And the Sabres in terms of shots on goal, they had about 10, or they had 10 about 30 minutes into the game and they finished with 25. So, they did seem to adjust and figure out some things with the one three one and how to generate offense in the second half of the game. They were just down three nothing by that point. Uh, and it's week it, it's I don't say it's week one. It it is week one. It's game one. You know we talk a lot about not overreacting to an NFL season in the first week of the season, how that goes, and hockey's even more so. So I, you can't make too many judgments about any team, especially the youngest team in the league, the Buffalo Sabers, on day one and how this roster even is going to look a month or two or three into the season with the Sabres have 8 million in cap room. They obviously can make trades. They have the assets to do that. And Zach Benson, as good of a story as he is coming out of training camp and preseason and being on the roster, he might not be here after he plays in nine games. So things could look a little bit different, but the thing that didn't look different from last season, it might not look different throughout the season and probably will determine how far this team goes is the defense and the defensive mindset and the ability to keep the puck out of their own net. And Devin Levi looks great for a rookie goaltender last year. And there's a lot of hype and promise on him, but you know, he hasn't, he didn't last night look like the savior and goal and the kind of goalie that can steal games for the Sabres. So they allowed 300 goals last year. And I don't see a lot of, evidence quite yet that they're not going to be that type of defensive team again this year. Yeah. I I thought that Zach Benson looked okay last night for an 18 year old, uh, good player. Uh, He didn't look overwhelmed. He did have the penalty. It was a hook uh, at 1206 of the first period. It was a bad call. I mean, he was getting his stick held and for some reason he ends up getting uh, the hooking. He goes to the box and, and the Rangers uh, score a goal while he's uh, he's there. Uh, So I'm sure he wasn't feeling great about his first night in the NHL, but he looked okay out there. He looked like he he could belong. Uh, like you say, uh, the, the there's a test drive period that you have with players like Zach Benson. It'll be interesting to see what the what the Sabers do with him uh, here in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, Tim, let me ask you this: What do you think of the speculation, belief, even some reports that you know the Sabers are the favorite team to sign Patrick Kane, and he could potentially be plugged into that Zach Benson spot uh, later into the season. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the thing about Patrick Kane and it comes, you know, obviously I, I covered 
the the case against him uh, that was thrown out, uh, but it was very controversial, and he was investigated for rape um, uh, several years back, and uh, I was uh, covering it along with Lou Michelle and Dan Herbick of the Buffalo News, and our coverage uh, won a, a APSE award for um, for breaking news and new, or news coverage or whatever whatever it was for and it was first place for the year. I think it might be the only first place I've ever won in the APSE awards, but um, it was hard to cover. You know, he's a hometown hero uh, who found himself in in trouble whenever he seemed to come home the, to the point where the Blackhawks advised him, "You got to move out of there," which he did. So I think it's interesting. There are very, there's only one place that he can sign and have that come up as a story, and that's Buffalo. I mean, he is a complicated figure uh, around uh, Western New York. He is not necessarily beloved. He certainly is in South Buffalo, where he's from, uh, but he's got a reputation here. Um, he's grown up a lot. I would at least hope, or at least based on people who've who've vouched for him that. Uh, He's not uh, punching cabbies anymore and and getting into situations where he can uh, find himself under police investigation. Um, but um, it's interesting. Uh, you have the youngest team in the NHL. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I'd have to defer to people who've been around him in recent years as to what type of mentor figure he is. Uh, these days, um, what uh, what type of advice he gives? Maybe he's in the stage of life where he's, um, you know, can reflect and say, you know, I made a lot of mistakes in my younger days. Here's how you stop from getting into trouble. Here's how you can be a better professional. Here's how you cannot put your team in a in a bad position. Uh, in from a public relations standpoint. Does he have what it takes? Does he have does he have enough left to to help the Sabers? I mean, that's that's another question too. But I think the reason you asked me the question, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was you was the the first part that I just talked about well, regarding because we've talked about it before. He yeah. could go anywhere else. He could go to the Florida Panthers, and nobody's going to mention his past. If he signs with the Sabers, that story has to be written. You know, that's that he's he's done things in this town that have upset people that have been considered illegal, that were embarrassing. Um, it, again, to the point where the Blackhawks said, you have to sell your lakefront mansion and get out of there, which he did. Um, and they didn't want him around because every time he came back, whether it be, you know, old friends or relatives or whatever, he had these these clicks and things happened. So. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic that I don't think just evaporates. Uh, it needs to probably be addressed. You know, it's it if he's if he's decides to to spend significant time back in Western New York after essentially leaving. Right, and you're right. That is partly why I wanted your opinion on it. But I also was interested just overall. You know what you thought of his game and how it might fit and haven't covered the league as long as way back as you did. Um, if you think a piece like that is what the Sabres need, but to, to react to what you said, I, I don't really see it happening partly for all of the reasons that you mentioned. And it does seem like a public relations can of worms for both the team and the player that both might want to avoid um, potentially, but hockey wise, I don't see it making a lot of sense because I don't think more offense and more scoring punch is exactly what the Sabres need. 
I don't know if there really is an obvious lineup fit for him if and when Jack Quinn comes back to the team. Now, if Jack Quinn isn't ever going to be healthy this season, then maybe Patrick Kane does make a lot of sense as a temporary plug-in for the second half of the season. But, and even cap room-wise and salary, the Sabres have the ability to pay Patrick Kane pretty much whatever he wants for this season. But if he wants any sort of long-term deal at a significant salary, I don't know how much sense that makes for the Sabres. And there's potential to, you know, upset the apple cart locker room-wise. Um, even if Patrick Kane comes in and is, you know, a model citizen and, and does all of the right things, he's an older player that, you know, isn't part of this core group right now coming in from the outside. And it does potentially undermine Kyle Poso and other, even though Eric Johnson is a new player, but just the, the locker room leadership structure that the Sabres have in place and the lineup and power play opportunities and offense workload share that the Sabres have with a lot of players already on the team. You know, I don't know if it, all of those dynamics make sense to bring Patrick Kane into the fold right now. Highly decorated player, perhaps the greatest American born hockey You're player. Still there, Tim? You froze up on me. Uh, apologies uh, for those who may be experiencing some technical difficulties. Uh, the undisclosed location where I am broadcasting from has a little trouble with the Wi-Fi here in the bunker. So uh, we're going to try to soldier through it. But Jonah was uh, discussing uh, Patrick Kane and his uh, efficacy uh, as a hockey player and whether or not it is needed uh, for the Buffalo Sabres, I will say that he is probably the most decorated American-born hockey player. Uh, he doesn't have as many points as Mike Madano, but he has more cups and more hardware. That said, Patrick Kane is going to be 35 years old next month. And uh, his stats last season, uh, just to remind everybody how effective he was for uh, the Blackhawks and the Rangers, over 73 games, he had 21 goals and 36 assists for 57 points. He was a minus 22, and uh, he had four power play goals, one winner. I mean, winners are neither here nor there. That's a weird stat in hockey, but I'm just trying to give a full uh, disclosure here as based on uh, uh, what he was uh, able to do. He played 19 minutes a game last season, and um, so he's, he's clearly uh, tailing off. In terms of his career, he's dealing with injuries, which is why he's unsigned right now. And his agent, Pat Brisson, is uh, saying that he's going to want to uh, wait uh, a little bit just to see how things shake out and get better and get healthier and, and find a, a good fit for him. So um, Patrick Kane to the Sabres, uh, I agree with you, Jonah. I don't think that he would be uh, the boon that a lot of fans uh, believe he would be. Um, would he help? I don't think he'd hurt, at least from a hockey standpoint, but you mentioned a lot of uh, very important factors about leadership and the structure and people who've been here and up through the program. And, you know, they have uh, built this in a pretty impressive way so far. I wasn't sure it was going to work when they made uh, Kevin Adams with no GM experience and Don Granato with no NHL head coaching experience, uh, the, the faces of the franchise and the big decision makers. Uh, but it has kind of congealed it, it uh, in such a way that uh, I, I think it's uh, the fans uh, rightfully have expectations for the season, as do uh, 
Adams and Granado and the entire organization. Well, and the first game result, notwithstanding, it was a very good week for the Sabres, reaching contract extensions on the max term with Rasmus Dahlin, eight years, seven years with Owen Power at, you know, a salary that's probably going to look like a bargain sooner than later. And him at only 20, 21 years old, seeming like a player who's arrived in the NHL and ready to break out and be, you know, another version of Rasmus Dahlin, at least from a, you know, talent and salary perspective. And then you look back a year ago at that Tage Thompson contract extension that some people thought might have been an overpay or premature. And now Tage Thompson going on next year's salary is going to be the 88th highest paid player in hockey. And a lot of these, um, you know, player Raiders or power ranking players in the NHL have him much higher than that. And an all-star player, obviously, you know, one of the premier players in the NHL right now. So having all these players locked up, Dylan Cousins as well, Matias Samuelson, on long-term contracts, but still having a open calorie, you know, a lot of cap space potentially open this offseason and going forward and ability to add even more to this roster if they need to with all of these young pieces developing and draft picks like Zach Benson uh, coming of age ahead of their time. Things are looking very good for the long-term and potentially the short-term future of the Sabres. Just didn't happen on night one. Let's uh, maybe try to burn through some of these topics here as the undisclosed location uh, is kind to us right now. We can't guarantee how kind it will be for the next half hour or so. So uh, let's switch over to the Bills. Um, great opponent coming into Orchard Park, the New York Giants. Not only are they bad, but they're really banged up. Uh, Daniel Jones has been ruled out for the game. I don't know if that's necessarily uh, a positive or a negative for the Bills. Facing uh, Daniel Jones uh, probably had a lot of the defensive players excited. Uh, so we're going to see old friend Terod Taylor at quarterback uh, for another old friend, Brian Dable, at, as the head coach uh, returning. Uh, doesn't look like uh, the cards will uh, portend uh, a triumphant victory uh, for uh, the Western New York native uh, Brian Dable. Uh, three starting offensive linemen also ruled out left tackle Andrew Thomas, left guard Shane Lemieux, and uh, center uh, John Michael Schmitz. Uh, there's a undrafted rookie uh, left guard, Mark Glowinski, who has just given up sacks left and right, and he's going to be one of the most experienced uh, players out there. Evan Neal also is questionable. He's the right tackle. So uh, what a mess. Uh, it, this is, could be a classic get-right game. And I don't think that this is uh, the type of opponent, Jonah, because it is Brian Dable and uh, general manager Joe Shane and quarterbacks coach Shea Tierney and line uh, offensive line coach Bobby Johnson. There are so many familiar faces on that other sideline that the Bills aren't going to be sleepwalking into this game. This is a classic, you know, two brothers playing against each other. Uh, it's the, the Bills aren't going to... Um, take this one for granted because they really want to win this game against uh, their old buddies. And um, so I think it's, it's a perfect opponent based on what we saw in London and a lot of the flatness, a lot of the sloppiness uh, that we saw. Yeah, it's a lot of factors that would be very interesting and intriguing if you thought the Giants could be competitive in this game. And Terod Taylor's 
you know, revenge moment or Brian Dable coming in and outwitting Sean McDermott and, you know, all the different connections and any potential for that would be interesting if that were to play out Sunday night, but seems to be lost to all of the injuries. But the Bills are a team dealing with injuries as well, although everybody currently on the 53-man roster, I think, uh, practiced today and, and could potentially play on Sunday. But they now lost Matt Milano, Tredavious White, all pro-caliber players in consecutive weeks. Von Miller is working his way back, but played a limited amount of snaps and we're not really sure how many more weeks it'll be before he looks like Von Miller again out there on the field. And the Bills never really having this defense in its full foreign potential with all of its very best players on the field together. Maybe that's unrealistic for any team in the NFL, but the bills are probably going to look very good on Sunday night and maybe very good for a stretch of three games here. Uh, get right period of the season. Um, but you, you know, there's questions about, you know, where that ceiling is now with some of the injuries that they've incurred so far. Von Miller and Tredavious White played a handful of snaps together on Thanksgiving last year uh, in Detroit. Perhaps never to play together ever again because Von Miller got hurt in that game. Uh, Tredavious White uh, comes back uh, and then gets hurt right before Von Miller makes his return in London. Um, so, yeah, that just is uh, illustrative of um, how this def defense is – never at its best in terms of how the bills have envisioned it over the last two years, everybody together. Um, I do think though, and this lends itself to what our old friend, uh, Joel Staniszewski used to talk to us about regarding injuries from a betting perspective, uh, Matt Milano and Daquan Jones uh, being lost for the season is not going to affect the point spread for any bills game. And the part of the reason being is the drop off, from a defensive standpoint, uh, while significant in terms of talent, there are so many things that you can do schematically to make up for the loss of a great player. So the Bills are going to blitz a little differently now. Uh, they are going to play different coverages now. Uh, there are things that you can't come uh, that you can't overcome when you lose your starting quarterback, when you lose your number one receiver. Um, even your number one receiver, you know, there are, Joel would talk about it all the time. You have to be a very special player to affect a point spread um, or any kind of betting uh, analysis that um, other than a quarterback, JJ Watt was the type of guy who maybe uh, could impact a spread if he wasn't going to play. Um so that's just my way of saying that I think that the Bills with this upcoming schedule that they have will be able to get some defensive pieces in place to get them some experience, much like we were talking about this young Sabres team, to get them all together, getting some chemistry. They have the Giants on Sunday night. Then they go to Foxborough to play a wounded Patriots team. Hey, out in Boston, they're talking about whether or not Robert Kraft is going to let Bill Belichick make it to the end of the season. That's how bad things are with the New England Patriots. Then the Bills host the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in week eight. That's a Thursday night game. That'll be a tough out. Then they're at Cincinnati against a team that is also struggling. Joe Burrow has been banged up and not playing very well. Then the Broncos, then the Jets, and then really the gauntlet down the home stretch. The Bills are going to have to face at Philadelphia by week, at Kansas City, Dallas at home, 
at the Chargers. That game is in Los Angeles on a Saturday night, December 23rd. So you have a holiday aspect there. Then the Patriots at home and then finishing up on the road at the Miami Dolphins. So I do think that this, again, to, to reiterate, a good time for these defensive pieces to get on the field, start working through some things. There are some pretty sharp defensive minds on this Bills uh, coaching staff, not just Sean McDermott, but Eric Washington. You know, they're, they're you know, John Butler. I think that they are going to be able to compensate enough. Obviously, you can't replace Matt Milano or Daquan Jones, uh, but they are going to be able to compensate enough. And let's not forget one other maybe more significant factor than just being able to uh, work their way through defense uh, defensive needs uh, through schematics and uh, banding together. The Bills have the type of offense that can win shootouts. I know that uh, that Sean McDermott loves to talk about complimentary football, would prefer to play complimentary football. But if things get sideways, they can win a shootout and they can go ahead and say, all right, boys, let's go out there and we're going to have to win 31 to 28. We're going to have to win 40 to 36. Uh, they can do it because they have the quarterback, because they have the receivers, because they, uh, you know, on some weeks seem like they have the running game to be able to pull it off. But what I think I'm most impressed with, uh, with the offense so far through five games is the offensive line play. It has been remarkably strong. They've clearly upgraded at both guard positions. Uh, Osiris uh, Torrance has been uh, fabulous as a rookie. Uh, Connor McGovern has been a significant upgrade over Roger Saffold. And everybody else has been holding up uh, and playing uh, as you'd expect. Well, how about Spencer Brown? Spencer Brown playing better uh, than than people thought he was going to and better than he looked uh, in the opener. So I do think that the Bills can compensate uh, in, a, in a bunch of different ways. Uh, the sky is not falling yet. Now, can they afford another injury? Can they afford to lose A.J. Epinesa and, or a or – a, or, Hyde or Poyer or can they you know get their can their cornerback play get more watered down uh yeah uh but I think as it stands now maybe they've uh they've experienced their bad luck and they're uh they they avoid the injuries for at least a little while I think they're going to be okay uh I, I want to bring just a matter of oh go ahead how much star power lost you know, a team can withstand and still be a, a Super Bowl contender and still win a championship. As you mentioned, none of these players affect the point spread and they aren't the most important players. But you go by average salary, I'm looking it up here. Tredavious White is the fourth highest paid player in the team. Matt Milano, seventh. Daquan Jones, 13th, and, you know, was playing very well. These are some of the best players on the team. And it's not quite like hockey or basketball or, or other sports, but it is part of the reason why the bills are as good as they are and expected to be contenders the way that they are. Isn't just Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs. It's Josh Allen, Stefan Diggs, and a lot of other good players and other key positions. And they still have a lot of strength, especially on the defensive line and the pass rushers, but they're not the best version of themselves and never will be uh, again this season. True. And obviously you can't, uh, you can't pick and choose which players you are going to lose uh, but just for the sake of a you know a thought experiment, I think it would be way more devastating if the Bills had lost um, two members of their offensive line than 
Matt Milano and, and Daquan Jones. I mean, they, they were playing great, obviously, but I think that's harder to overcome the drop off from, you know, because you're not just losing two offensive linemen. It affects the run game. Uh, Josh Allen's going to get hit more. Uh, he's going to be uh, harassed more. He's going to be, th- you know, he's going to throw more picks, uh, you know, fumble, whatever. There's all kinds of things that I think that in the, um, the, uh, the world of the offense, you know, is uh, that's the, that's going to be the nucleus of this team. I think it was a little bit, it was more spread out uh, where it was, again, complimentary football as Sean McDermott strives for. It's what Brandon Bean wants to build his roster to be able to do, but they do have the firepower and the great elite offensive weapons that they can say, all right, boys, uh, here we go. Uh, it's time to just, uh, we're going to have to get after it in this way. Um, and uh, I think they have the ability to play that that brand of football. Uh, whereas the other way around, if Kyle Allen is your quarterback and not Josh Allen, can the Bills win, you know, 14 to 10, uh, you know, maybe some weeks. Uh, but I think that the offense is, uh, or I think the offense can still propel this team. Uh, I want to mention uh, Stefan Diggs, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, under fire again, uh, or at least he's a topic of conversation for the national uh, talking head shows. Uh, Here in my uh, bunker, I had the uh, uh, ESPN on uh, while I was setting up the laptop and Shannon Sharp was getting on Stefan Diggs for uh, slamming the tablet down uh, in London. Uh, Bad sideline behavior as far as Shannon Sharp is concerned now. Uh, this is the second time in five games that uh, Shannon Sharp has uh, brought attention to himself for maybe being a, a volatile teammate. It's something that's happened before. Clearly, it happened in Minnesota. That was one of the big storylines. It's happened in Buffalo. It happened last season. It happened in Detroit uh, for the Browns game in which Stefan Diggs was, you know, uh, openly upset with and talking with Sean McDermott during the game about not getting the ball more. Uh, We saw Stefan Diggs leave the locker room early uh, after the loss to the Cincinnati Bengals in the playoffs before the coaching staff even got out there in there into the locker room. And and Sean McDermott can give his, his speech uh, after that playoff loss. Uh, He was bolting out of there, all the different off season stuff in which we never really got an answer as to what the issue was. Sean McDermott was very concerned uh, Stefan Diggs wasn't practicing. I mean, I guess I don't need to go through the entire litany, but um, it, it's uh, it's been interesting uh, as this uh, we try to reconcile, and I think Stefan Diggs is also trying to reconcile the the line between, as he called himself, mysterious. He says he likes to be mysterious, but he also is pretty quick to bemoan the idea that or this the concept that he's misunderstood so at what point is stefan diggs to blame and it was a it was a heated discussion i mean as these as these shows get i mean for production purposes it was a heated discussion between uh shannon sharp and his uh his uh, talk show co-host uh, ryan clark and uh, chris canty for this particular uh segment uh canty and clark disagreed with shannon sharp but Michael Irvin also uh, got on Stefan Diggs for for his sideline behavior, for making his quarterback look bad in Michael Irvin's eyes uh, by telling uh, Josh Allen to use his head uh, during that Jets game when things were falling apart. So 
I don't know. I just think it's an interesting dynamic. And look, I didn't even mention the Maddie Glab thing and how he's misunderstood. He likes to be mysterious, but he's misunderstood. And I don't know where it's um, do we, should we even care? Should we not bother with it? Or is this that Josh Allen says it's okay, but of course, what's Josh Allen going to say is Josh Allen going to say, Hey, look, this is unacceptable. I mean, this is his most important teammate in, in a lot of regards uh, is Stefan Diggs. He's not going to, he's, you know, the bills want to keep this thing together. Um, I don't know, Jonah, that's a lot. Uh, I'll just, uh, well, I'll open I the think floor. You, you covered most of it, but uh, you know, in that the breadth of it, you know, this is the Stefan Diggs experience and it comes with all pro caliber play. And uh, some of the stuff is fun that the touchdown celebrations and some of the things, Stefan Diggs says and does in Fashion Week and things like that. Some Playing that catch is, with fans before the game. Sure. And I, I saw an MNT commercial where he visited a bank, and that, that was kind of funny to watch. So some of this is good, positive, fun, and part of why Stefan Diggs is a very popular player with the Bills fan base and within the Bills locker room, voted a team captain. And when his name is brought up, pretty much every player on the team is quick to defend him and you know push back on any of these narratives about Stefan Diggs' personality or leadership or any sort of locker room issues that outsiders kind of project onto the Bills and onto Stefan Diggs and his relationship with teammates in the franchise. At the same time, you know, I mentioned the star power earlier. Stefan Diggs, as a player and a personality, has reached a, a level of fame as an athlete where just about anything he does gets debated on these national talk shows. And even within local media as well, and, and but especially with the national dialogue, there people pick sides on either criticizing what he's done or defending what he's doing or saying what he might be, you know, in the news for this week as a non-story. Which I think throwing the tablet down really wasn't a significant, uh, you know, marker in the timeline of Stefan Diggs with the Bills. But what it's done is, you know, like it or not, or whether it's fair or deserved. Uh, you know, Stefan Diggs' presence on the Bills has become somewhat of a distraction because of all of the attention that gets put on to every move that he makes and the cryptic tweets and the mysterious behavior. And I don't think it's problematic right now. I think things are going very well with Stefan Diggs and Josh Allen and Ken Dorsey and the offense and the team spirit and everything that goes with this Stefan Diggs experience seems to be going well right now. But if there comes a point in time when the Bills move on in an offseason to come. I think it'll definitely be because of all that goes with having Stefan Diggs on the roster and the cumulative effect of that over multiple seasons. Uh, you know, we'll see where that maybe comes to a head in the future. Yeah, I don't personally, I don't mind it. Uh, I think that it is overblown to a degree. But I also think that he does take some ownership in that he understands that it is, it does become an issue because he does talk about how he's misunderstood. So at what point, I mean, is it, it's not just totally everybody else's fault. I don't think, I mean, it, it, it not that in the moment he needs to think, you know, he wants to throw down the tablet because he's pissed off. And in that moment, he thinks, you know what, I shouldn't do it because I don't want to be on the talk shows. I, I don't think that. But um, but there is a, 
you know, I, I'm thinking back, I can picture the image of him standing there next to Sean McDermott when Sean McDermott's trying to coach the team and against the Browns uh, last season. And, and, and Diggs is pissed off during the game and Sean needs to say, okay, go sit down. I mean, he's trying to coach a football game. Um, there are some things that he does that seem to not, to the inability, I guess, to read the room. Uh, and then he gets pissed off at the room uh, for not reading him. You know, does that? Uh, no, I, mean, I, I like I like the description. Yeah, I think, yeah, he's. Uh, I think, yeah, I just kind of stumbled across it, but I think that's true. I think he, you know, hey, why can't you guys figure me out? And, well, why can't you figure us out? You know, or why can't you figure out your teammates or the situation or your coaches? And it's not, I don't mean it us as the media. I mean, it's like everything around him, he is oblivious to, but he, but he wants everybody to figure him out or at least be able to decipher him uh, while he, while he chooses to remain mysterious. Decipher me while I'm mysterious is kind of, you know, I'm going to send out these cryptic tweets, but if you can't figure it out, that's your fault, not my fault. And it's just, you know, I think it, it adds up. And again, it's the Stefan Diggs experience. It makes it, I guess, interesting. It gives the talk shows uh, something to talk about. They don't have to go looking as far and we can talk about it here. Um, I don't think it necessarily affects the bills one way or the other, but uh, UB football uh, as the bunker uh, seems to be working. Okay. Are you getting me through? Okay. Am I, oh, yeah, how's yeah, my yeah. video? Okay. Uh, UB football against Bowling Green. We were talking uh, last week about how good Bowling Green was against Georgia Tech, and then they get uh, curb stomped uh, against uh, Miami of Ohio. So what uh, UB, meanwhile, undefeated in the MAC, right? 2-0 in the MAC, two straight wins, continuing a trend. This goes back multiple seasons now where uh, under Moling was UB, they lost three or four in a row at the end of his first season. Then they lose three in a row at the beginning of last season, win five in a row, lose three in a row, end the season on a two-game winning streak, start this season with four straight losses, 0-4 start. Now have won two in a row, and I think in a pretty good position to uh, potentially win this homecoming game on Saturday against Bowling Green and be 3-0 and in the MAC, and really further separated from that uh, 0-4 start and any concerns and questions about this program and the direction it was going in. Yeah, that's um let's leave it at there. I my I just heard my fan kick in on the laptop. That's always a scary thing, especially on my laptop because it sounds like a jet engine. And uh if my computer starts to do whatever it's about to do as the fan is forecasting, I don't know, is it about to start doing a Windows download or something? I don't know. I think it's time to bail. Uh we've been at it for about an hour. That's a good podcast. We covered everything. We got the Sabres. We got the Bills. We got UB. Anything anything in the last minute before we crash here, Jonah? No, just while I was rambling there, I was looking up the point spread. UB is a four-and-a-half-point favorite against Bowling Green. Uh, you know, further kind of underscoring the opportunity they have here to really, you know, continue their momentum and, and get past the midway point of the season on a winning streak and moving towards bowl eligibility and MAC contention. All right, so I watched the Bowling Green-Georgia Tech game uh, as it was happening. Bowling Green looked pretty good. Now, of course, they didn't – they laid the proverbial egg uh, with the with the shutout last week. I've seen UB play. If I'm getting four and a half, I like that. I like the four and a half. I just want to state that for the record. 
because rarely do I do. I don't do big betting stuff, but I like the four and a half based on what I saw from Bowling Green just two weeks ago against a power five school. Well, yeah, and this action can be so unpredictable that you probably are wise to take the points when they're available. Uh, Buffalo has been a strange team. They were playing very well on offense through that four-game losing streak, and the defense was, you know, one of the worst in the country. Now the defense is really the reason they've won these last two games. Devin Grant, a sophomore safety, is the Bronco Nagurski Defensive Player of the Week nationally. Um, and But the offense has struggled the past two weeks and hasn't been quite as good as it was. So if they can put those two things together and play a complete game, um, you know, there's another level of this team that we haven't quite seen yet. Or maybe, you know, the other thing is they haven't really put it together and played bad on both sides of the ball yet, and maybe that's coming one of these weeks. Jonah, thanks for soldiering through this. Uh, and uh, I'm sure I'll see you at some point this weekend. Maybe not. Let's maybe find a way to see each other before Sunday night. Yeah, well, get home safe from your undisclosed location and the long commute you have there. We'll see how that goes. Hopefully travel is smooth. But uh, thanks, everybody out there for uh, listening and watching. Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business and our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsourced solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400. 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you. Oh,